Hello and welcome to Building Local Power. I'm your co-host Reggie Rucker. We are back with episode two of this season. We are highlighting frontline stories in the fight against monopoly power by talking with people from all over the country who are actively engaging in building more equitable, thriving local economies. In the last episode, Dr. Perryman and Kennedy Smith chronicled how dollar stores are preying on communities and what these communities can and are doing to stop them. In this episode, we flip to the other side of the coin to hear about what happens when you create space for local independent grocery stores to take root and create strong, vibrant communities where the dollar stores and the big box chain retail stores simply can't or just won't. To get into today's episode, let me kick it over to my co-host and Building Local Power's oasis of eternal enthusiasm and optimism, Luke Gannon. What's up, Luke? Thank you, Reggie. I am Luke Gannon, and today, Aaron Johnson, who is the owner and founder of Oasis Fresh Market, a thriving, local, independently owned grocery store in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is telling his story. So let's start from the beginning. Originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but I moved to Tulsa after my parents divorced when I was nine. And so I'm, what, 37 now? But I'm the youngest of, of three of two older sisters. Growing up, there were moments where there were at times, disconnect notices on our door, or I went to school without having a breakfast or a lunch. My mom was, a, as a single parent, worked extremely hard, had multiple jobs. I worked all the way through middle school and high school in order to help support my mom as well, and was fortunate enough to go to a private school. But even in going to a private school, there was this great divide. A lot of kids pulled up in their, you know, mom's and dad's vehicles and you knew when the johnsons were pulling up by the sound of the car a few miles away i was fortunate enough to almost be in the middle and i hate to use that description but i had obviously uh, i'm i'm black and come from african-american roots and challenges but at the same time lived in what many call a white man's world because of my athletic abilities, it opened up doors that may not have otherwise been open. was able to go to college uh, playing football at the University of Tulsa. And so growing up in Tulsa, there at times and still to this day is, is a great divide. Not knowing at the time when I was got my license and driving and got pulled over in a super nice neighborhood that I was leaving my friend's house. That was my first time as a young teenager experiencing the racial divide. I guess I lived in a bubble up until that point. I didn't know about the Tulsa race massacre really until college in my African-American studies class. So didn't know too much of the history, even in my own city that I that I lived in, but yet was experiencing racial tension and didn't even know that word as a kid and the trauma that's associated with with that. Fast forward to being in a community that was once called Black Wall Street here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, before the race massacre back in 1921. And as we approached the centennial of that, I was at another company doing some nonprofit work focused right here in North Tulsa. And I knew that the pandemic was going to cause thus a further divide, disparities, gaps between the upper class, the middle class, and the lower class, between those living on the other side of the tracks and those that weren't. And so really kind of felt this 
righteous burden to take some of my grocery past experience, which I didn't have much of, and take a step of faith, really, in the middle of a food desert here in North Tulsa. There hadn't been a grocery store in 14 years. And so we took a step and had my wife of nine years. She's Asian. I got, I'm black. Obviously, we got Blasian daughters, so black and Asian. <laughs> and so we, we took baby diapers, baby funds, 401k, and put it all on the line to play our role in, in trying to be the answer. For 14 years, the community of North Tulsa was forced to reckon with the destructive consequences of this lack of access to quality food on people's health and livelihoods. The life expectancy rate in North Tulsa is 11 years shorter than any other community in Tulsa. But for me, kind of felt like, man, the stories that we're hearing of individuals and the challenges they're facing are pretty heavy. But how do we take it one step further? You know, how can you, it's great to have a free medical clinic. It's great to give away free food, but that can only last someone so long in underserved communities. And so with there being $10 generals, but yet not fresh and healthy access and people are dying 11 years shorter in North Tulsa, there's a, in my mind, and I didn't go to school for this, but in my mind, one day I felt like there's gotta be a correlation. There's a connection there. And fortunately for, for us, our city councilor, uh, Vanessa Harper, and Rose Washington of uh, Tulsa Economic Development, and our mayor, G.T. Bynum, really felt, hey, how can we come up with an answer? There had been no grocery store in, in 14 years, and the city had allocated some federal dollars to build this grocery store, and there was still a gap. And so I felt like throughout the pandemic, I don't know if it was bad pizza or COVID, but it caused me to say, I think now's a great time to build a 6.5 brand new grocery store, 6.5 million, 16,000 square feet, and to start a business and a nonprofit at the same time. I definitely probably had COVID, but I felt like our motto is more than just groceries equipping for life. Food is great. But if we're not helping to transform the community and financial literacy and education and workforce development and medical and really food is a systemic issue in black communities. I love Cheetos and French fries. I have since I was a kid. I didn't know about zucchini and squash until I was an adult. And so how can we break that generational divide within our kids and the kids of communities across the country. One in six people in America today, one in six live in food deserts in America. Almost 54 million people. And so of most food deserts also are food swamps. There's a difference. A food desert is a lack of access to fresh and healthy food. In an urban area, it's within nine miles. And in a rural area, I believe it's within 14 or 15 miles. But in most of these food deserts, lack of fresh and healthy access, there's also food swamps. So your McDonald's, your Wendy's, your Burger King's, your Taco Bell's, and your gas stations that people are spending maybe their food stamps or even their regular dollars in order to buy food. So imagine for 14 years, North Tulsa residents had to shop at Dollar General's, 
had to, 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 to shop at gas stations in order to survive, in order to live. And so if one in six people, how many boys and girls is that affecting? Then how's that affecting their stomachs in school? Then how's that affecting their brain? How's that affecting how what they absorb? How's that affecting their behavior? And all of a sudden you have a classroom full of kids and the teacher goes, these kids are all bad. No, actually these kids are hungry. These kids are vitamin deficient. These kids are raising kids, the trauma. And that's why we felt that it was important to provide more than just groceries. Aaron decided that his community needed a long-term solution and a big investment. So Aaron and his family took a leap of faith to fill a dire need. He had an idea, a vision, and he was ready to turn it into a reality. But he needed a name. I remember one night sitting at my laptop. It was about 11.45 or so leaving the job at the time. And I was working nights to get answers to the architects and the designers for Oasis at the time that didn't have a name. And I remember the marketing firm had sent all these amazing names. And I remember shutting my laptop and closing my eyes and saying, if I was physically in a desert, because North Tulsa was considered a food desert and had been for many years, if I was physically in the Sahara desert, and I was closing my eyes in this exercise, and I said, man, I would, I would want water. I would want food. Of course, I would want shade. But if I was there for a long time, I would probably have hallucinations that we see on the movies. <laughs> you know, Indiana Jones and all these other movies. And if I was having a hallucination, what would I see? And I said, I would probably see, see Hawaii. This, this kind of picture of the beach and palm trees and, and blue water. And in my mind, I felt oasis. And I remember opening my laptop and Googling the definition of oasis. And it means refuge, safe place, shelter. And if we can go one step further in an underserved community, what's a refuge? A refuge is a building or, or, or it's a covering. Well, a covering protects us against the wind, the rain, and the ailments that exist outside of that building. Well, North Tulsa, where there's so much racial issues and lack of fresh and healthy access, lack of broadband issues, lack of transportation, man, we said, uh, how can we build a refuge that protects our community, that protects families and boys and girls and senior citizens? And so, we did that and, and started our for-profit Oasis Fresh Market and started our nonprofit at the same time, the Oasis Projects, with the goal of providing fresh and healthy access, but also wraparound services. In 2021, Oasis Fresh Market officially opened, providing the community of North Tulsa and beyond with aisles of fresh produce, and as Aaron admits, some crunchy Cheetos. But Oasis soon became emblematic of the kinds of spaces that are necessary to foster community and help people who might be in need of more than groceries. We're an individual that just came into our store, beautiful, beautiful mom of five. Her name is India. She came into the store and sat down at the table and put her head down. And one of our community coordinators, Brittany, went over to her and started talking to her. And she just put her head up and she was weeping. And we had for a season a rental and utility assistance program for to meet the needs of underserved 
renters. And that program ended not too long ago. And she thought we were still in that program. So here she comes to a refuge, a safe place, a shelter, not in need of apples or oranges or or anything that she has for her five kids, but she needed help with her utilities. She has five kids. One of her kids has severe asthma and she has no electric. So how do you plug in? And I grew up with severe asthma as a kid, almost died twice, um, would go to the hospital every single winter with a massive asthma attack. So I know the effects. And she was $400 behind and they had cut it off. And she said, I don't know what I'm going to do with my son. And we just felt the need to pay that bill for her. And where in the world do you go to a for-profit entity in, in, in a dark moment in your life, in an underserved community, not to buy groceries, but to get utility assistance to help your young boy with asthma? I can relate. We all can relate. And so it is hard work. It, it, it does come at, at, a, at a heavy cost. And I don't think there's a week that goes by that myself or any of my team members just don't cry from the stories that we hear. But what an amazing community we have here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that businesses and individuals and families come together and say, Asia, we, we want to partner with Oasis. We want to partner with the nonprofit, not just with finances, but with resources and influence to break that systemic divide and, and heal North Tulsa. India's story is one of many. Not only is Oasis serving their customer base with the philosophy grounded in community values, but the employees themselves create a supportive environment that fosters strong relationships. Oasis is a lifestyle. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you have all your needs met or some of your needs met or none of your needs met, we all need a refuge. We all want to be seen. We all want to feel safe and we all want to be heard. That is the basic need of every person, uh, we believe. And so that's why we want to try to meet the need right where people are at. And most of the time we learn that it doesn't take much. Sometimes people just want someone to know that they're listening to them. Sometimes people want you to apologize. I, I, I probably apologize a hundred times a week for things that have nothing to do with me or the grocery industry. <laughs> Um, and, and our staff does, does the same way, but we have an incredible group of people that have said that we want to all be a part of something that's bigger than us. And, and I think that's a human need. Where can I find purpose? Where can I find destiny? Where, what's my unique gift, but also what's my unique calling? Because we, we believe everyone was put on earth for something, whether it's an artist or a designer or a chef whatever it is, or podcast host, or, or write, whatever it is, everyone was put on the earth for something. And we want to help people find their unique gift. We had an a former employee come in today. Her name is Bam. We call her Bam Bam. Every morning at 930, we do a team rally and we, we go over our core values and who we are. We're a refuge, safe place, shelter. We want people to be seen, safe, and heard. And she came in this morning when she started this job, her goal was always to be a medical phlebotomist, like an assistant. That was, that was one of her goals. 
And she was open about that when she came on staff. And the way that I kind of, that we kind of lead is we lead with open hands. The employees don't belong to Oasis. They don't, they're not mine, uh, as, even though as the owner. They may be here for six months. We've got high school students. They may be here for a year, maybe some for a long lifetime. But whatever the season is, we want them to be able to say, I was better as a result of Oasis. And so we helped her while she's on staff. We helped her find an apartment. We helped her get into fix her resume. We helped her get the job that she wanted to via connections. And so she missed the morning rally. We call it a team huddle. And she missed that morning rally, that sense of community. So she came no longer as an employee, but really just as a as a participant. She said, I just miss being a part of these meetings. And we allow everyone to go around at the end. Hey, let's do a check in. How are you? Anything on your heart? And we have people that say, man, my dairy manager, his uncle just passed away. We have staff that used to be homeless. And so to give them us all a space to say, I'm grateful to be here, or you know what, I feel crappy today. Sorry if I'm in a bad mood. Hey, we would rather you say that in this place so we know how to support you in this circle versus treating customers bad or trash in the store. So we provide even within our staff a safe place for you to just share quickly, hey, is there anything you're going through or anything on your heart, anything we can do to serve you? This kind of space that Aaron refers to is one of the many benefits that small, local, independent businesses provide that large national and international chains rarely cultivate. North Tulsa has affirmed that Aaron's vision for Oasis was exactly what they needed. You know, I think about October, November, and December were some of the biggest outreaches that we've had this past year where all these kids dressed up and even adults, myself, I dressed up. I was, of course, Black Panther, you know, Wakanda, remember who you are. And we had Blacks and Hispanics and whites, Native Americans, all all different races coming together around the common cause of community. And we have banks that help people get bank accounts. We have home ownership programs. We have medical clinics. So anywhere between 13 to 15 vendors that come and provide resources for free. At that time, it was in our parking lot. It comes at a cost to essentially for three hours, not very many people come to grocery shop and spend money, but they come to be a part of a community outreach and we're giving away gift cards and groceries for free. But those those experiences, Christmas time, there was a mom that spent Thanksgiving in her car and didn't know what she was going to do for Christmas and Christmas meal. And so we were able to give her a $50 gift card. And she said, I don't know what I would do without these groceries. And so you hear those kind of stories and it makes you think people matter more than profit. Sure, we are a for-profit. Sure, we have a non-profit. But the nucleus of them both is, is people. And we believe the most important thing anyone can hear at the end of their lives is not well done, not good and faithful communications director or associate or CEO or founder, but it's servant. 
Oasis Fresh Market has now been open for two years, and in just those two years, it has provided thousands of families with fresh produce, as well as supported families in need of housing, bill payment, and general assistance. Aaron sees Oasis Fresh Market and the Oasis Project as the foundation for creating the living embodiment of community values. We, we really believe that this is the blueprint, that this is the model that other cities, other mayors, other governors can catch on to the power of for-profit and nonprofit coming together with amazing organizations like you all that provide amazing data and research and, and help amplify the power of local. Because on one aspect, we're not a Walmart. We're not a Sam's Club. We can't get 30,000 pallets of water for $1, you know, because of the, just the sheer volume. The bulk buying is, is a real thing, being, being a business owner, especially in a world today where supply and demand are, are so few, um, is so little, and inflation is on the rise across the board. In underserved communities, that power of partnership to help, man, eggs may be almost $7, $8 right now, and people are deciding, what do I buy? But if we can also help them go, man, I, I need help with my kids. Is there a family and children's service organization that we can get mental health services? Or I started a new job and I don't have transportation, but I need a bank account. How can we help lift the burden off of families that already possibly are up against so many other challenges? How can we remove those barriers? And so what does Tulsa look like? Man, what does Oasis look like? It, it looks like more than just groceries, whether it's got Oasis in front of it or another. If we can help other organizations do this, other companies do this, that power of local that you guys do so well, that's how we change the game. I, I don't know if big organizations and institutions can move as quick or be as nimble as we had today, let's meet the needs of real people. And I believe together we can do that. How? As an individual, an organization, and a society, do we meet the needs of real people? I know all of our regular listeners might be wondering, where is this book library? It is coming we promise, and we are continuing to build it out with guest recommendations. So let's hear Aaron's. You know, this this may be, uh, this isn't out of the box, but there's a book by Dr. Henry Cloud that is called Necessary Endings. Wherever there is an ending, there's also a beginning. And so for us, ending of a 14-year food desert was necessary but it's the beginning of a new dawn and on and at times a new set of problems that wasn't budgeted wasn't scripted or we weren't prepared to, to see but there is a new beginning and in our world today in the social climate i believe that there are millions of people across the world that are ready for something different and we hope to play a, a small part in being a spark and being a light that shows the power of partnership and how we can truly together make a, make a tremendous difference. Aaron is making a difference right now, as I speak, 
providing groceries and aid to his community. It was truly a pleasure to have Aaron Johnson on the show. Thank you, Aaron. For the second half of this episode, we invited the co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, Stacy Mitchell, who will dive into what's causing small, independent grocery stores to be wiped out in the policy decisions that led us here. But before that, I'm going to hand it over to the voice I know you've been missing, Reggie Rucker. Wow, the voice people have been missing, huh? <laughs> I feel like I need to turn on my Barry White slow jams at nine voice or something now. <laughs> but anyways, that's not why people are here. This is why we're here. Take a minute. Think about what an oasis looks like to you. If it's where the planet is thriving and people are living happy, healthy, and sustainable lives, consider heading over to ilsr.org backslash donate. In our modern economy, corporate concentration is threatening communities everywhere, jeopardizing the very existence of stories like the one we just heard of Aaron in North Tulsa. You can probably see it in your own community, but ILSR has a different vision, and we need your help. So if you can, even if it's just $5, $10, whatever you can, please head over to ILSR.org backslash donate and support our work to fight corporate power and build thriving, equitable communities. And if you're looking for additional ways to support, we will always accept a kind review wherever you get your podcasts. These reviews make a huge difference in helping us reach a wider audience. Okay, that's a break. Thank you so much for listening. And now back to the show. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Stacey. I think the first thing I wanted to do with you is, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are just, trying to grocery shop. They're trying to stock their fridge and their cabinets with food that like nourishes their family, fits within a budget and at a store that's convenient to get to. Like they're just not overthinking this thing. So what do you say to people that like have this as their calculation? Like why should whether or not this grocery store is locally owned outweigh any of those other factors or even just be like a serious consideration? What do you say to those people who are just trying to do grocery shopping? That's it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of factors, right? That go into grocery shopping and everybody's got different circumstances and different options that may or may not be available to them. So, you know, I'm definitely not a person who's like going to mandate, oh, you should only shop at these (laughs) stores. Like that's not, that's not my... But I do think it's worth reflecting on. I mean, I think in the interview with Aaron, we we heard a lot about the ways in which locally owned businesses are fundamentally different from national chains. I mean, we tend to talk about these things. Oh, they're all grocery stores. Oh, they're all banks. Oh, they're all toy stores or other kinds of businesses as though they're exactly the same. But when you really look at it, you have, you know, business that by virtue of being locally owned is operating in a completely different way. When he talked about what his goal is, you know, what he and his employees are trying to do, a lot of it was about this mission around the community, around what it is that his customers need in order to have like whole and fulfilling lives, what it is that his employees need and like their own personal development. Um, It's a store that has this, this mission. It's driven by something that's bigger than just selling groceries, although that's an integral part of it. And that's just not the case when you're talking about a big chain supermarket. I mean, Walmart, you know, Walmart probably has more than a dozen stores in the greater Tulsa area. And when Walmart from a distance is looking at those stores, the only thing it cares about is how much revenue is is coming in per square foot. 
how do we channel dollars to, to shareholders? That's the only thing that drives that business. So Stacy, can you talk a little bit more, expand a little bit more on how Aaron's story in North Tulsa stacks up against other stories you've either heard or read about across the U.S. in this big endeavor to start your own grocery store? Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me of a, a lot of the stories I've heard from lots of locally owned businesses that have started up where what's driving them is something bigger than the store. It's a it's usually a combination of a of a commitment and a relationship to the place and to the people that live there. I, I heard from him so many of the things that I've heard from other businesses that have started up. You know, usually there's two things that really drive a business owner and get and getting started. One is like this deep connection to the place and really having a vested interest in the people in that place. And then the other is having a real commitment and interest in the thing that they're doing or selling in this case, like fresh food and talking about the, the, the gap in life expectancy and like the role of food in that. And that sort of commitment to what it is, a, what a grocery store really is, which is, we talked about the notion of, of an oasis of a, of a safe and secure place. And the idea that grocery stores are part of our week-to-week and even day-to-day routines, like they're an integral part of our daily life and our and our sustenance. And so you really hear that when he talks about why he wanted to start this business and what drove him to do it. And it's that same kind of thing that I feel like I hear from independent business owners across the country that are getting started and, you know, especially true in communities that have been marginalized because there's just so much more of a need for that kind of commitment and investment and creating those kinds of spaces that that nurture the community. And so kind of staying with this theme, Stacey, of comparing or thinking about how Aaron's story and the North Tulsa story is similar to stories across the country. Also want to see if you can talk to us about in our economy, what they see in a community like Tulsa or, you know, others, you know, you mentioned these marginalized communities, like what are they looking at that says like, okay, that's a community we want to move into and really extract as much as we can from that community. Like, what, are, what are they identifying that's, that's key to that decision for them? Well, in the case of Walmart, in in some sense, they want all the grocery dollars, you know, I mean, that's sort of their goal, but they have a particular pattern to the geography of their expansion. So they come into a metro area like the greater Tulsa region, and they build these enormous stores. They're really quite large and quite a few of them and, and typically sort of encircle the city. And so they're in the suburbs, they're maybe in the sort of outer reaches of the city, And they build at a scale and with enough stores that they really dominate that regional market. And because they're able to use their power over suppliers to extract better deals than independent grocers can get, and we can dive into that more later, but because of that, they're often able to, through a certain amount of predatory pricing, they're they're often able to offer lower prices, at least on select things. And so they'll pull customers who are able to drive to those stores, you know, out of their neighborhoods. And so as Walmart expanded across metro areas, uh, Tulsa and elsewhere years ago, it was a lot of like small independent grocers, like one store operations, but also there were, there had been a lot of these like family owned chains that would be like 10 stores. 
and they would have stores across different cities in Oklahoma. Uh, and maybe they had a particular model that was focused on urban areas or black community. In some cases, you know, businesses owned by people of color. And those smaller chains are the ones that really got devastated by that regional saturation st strategy of Walmarts. And so then what happened is as they closed, you suddenly started having places that had no grocery stores at all. And Walmart, like a lot of the major supermarket chains, Kroger, Publix, they sort of redline low-income neighborhoods, Black neighborhoods, very small towns. They're places they don't really want to go, but they can have stores at the regional levels that effectively suck a lot of the economic vitality out of those places. And so as those neighborhoods got left without any grocery stores, it, it was like an open landscape for the dollar generals and the family dollars of the world. They just moved in like an invasive species, like after a great fire or something had kind of left everything open and they took over. And that's, you know, you really hear in Aaron's story, like that's what he's responding to, the extraordinary number of dollar stores and the fact that people in North Tulsa, that's the, really the only place they've had to buy to buy any kind of food. Aaron talked a lot about how North Tulsa, and we actually mentioned this in our new report, how North Tulsa was a food desert for 14 years. So can you first explain what is a food desert? What does that mean? And then talk about the policy decisions or lack of policy decisions mm -hmm. that may have led to North Tulsa becoming a food desert and staying that way. Yeah. So the food deserts are, are places that lack full service grocery stores where you basically you can't buy fresh food um, nearby. And the definition that the federal government has a definition and, and in, in urban areas, it's a certain number of miles and in rural areas, it's a larger number of miles to define what, what counts as a food desert. And food deserts have really exploded and they, they tend to be in a mix of some of them are in urban neighborhoods, and then there are a lot of rural areas that have also been left without grocery stores. There are a bunch of policy decisions, but they all kind of boil down to the fact that we have heavily favored this consolidated model. You know, if you think about it, I'm kind of going back to using, you know, some more, more ecology metaphors. If you have like a diversified ecosystem, you have, you know, lots of different kinds of species, small and large, that are kind of filling different niches. And when you go to a kind of single, highly consolidated situation, you know, you've got these big companies that they don't want to fill all those niches. And so the loss of independent grocery stores is not the only cause of food deserts by by any means, but it's a major one. There were a lot of family-owned, locally-owned grocers that were you know, owned by people who were from communities, wanted to serve those communities that are now places that are left with without grocery stores at all. And you know, a lot of the, the policy decisions that drove that consolidation have to do with the ways in which we altered our antitrust policy 40 years ago and stopped enforcing a level playing field. And it's absolutely no coincidence that, you know, those changes were made around right around 1980. And if you look at the growth of Walmart as a supermarket, they added groceries and they started growing like crazy not very long after that and just shot up. And then their growth spurred all this consolidation among other chains and on it went. And now we're in this situation. I'm curious specifically if there have been any sort of successful policy decisions in the last 10, 20 years that have helped keep some of these small, independent, local grocery stores alive? 
Yeah, yeah. So the two big things, I mentioned antitrust, and then the other big issue has to do with our financial system. So if you're a big chain, if you're Dollar General or you know Kroger or whatever, you have access to the capital markets, Wall Street investment, and you've got sort of an unlimited ability to finance your growth and to open new stores. If you're an independent grocer, you are faced with trying to get a loan from a bank. The kinds of banks that make loans to small businesses have been disappearing. The big banks don't make these loans. If you're an independent grocer and you want to serve a community of color, or if, you, if, you, if you're a Black entrepreneur, you're now facing even additional barriers to being able to get those loans. So our financial system is, is has also been a major culprit in this and in the ways in which we have and have not regulated that financial system to really put capital where it needs to go. So an example of a policy that has altered that dynamic, the state of Pennsylvania created something called the Pennsylvania Fresh Food Financing Initiative. And this was created, I don't know, I want to say about 15 years ago, and it lasted for about 10 years and kind of did did its job and then they sunset it. But basically the Mm -hmm. state put up a set of capital. There was a nonprofit called the Food Trust that was a partner with the state in doing that. And it used that capital to make grants and loans to people who wanted to start or expand grocery stores in low-income underserved communities. And they ended up financing about 100 grocery stores in both rural and urban places. And it was a mix of like, some of them were like little little green grocers. Some of them were like big full-service supermarkets. It was all kinds of different grocers, virtually all locally owned. And it's interesting because the locally owned part was not because the policy said they had to be, but it was rather because that's really where the need was. And those were the kinds of grocers that actually wanted to serve these communities. I mean, the reason that the big chains are not in North Tulsa or many other neighborhoods is because they don't want to be there. It's not because they lack capital, right? It's the independent grocers that lack the capital, but often do want to actually serve those communities. And so the Pennsylvania program fixed that problem uh, and really helped open a lot of these grocery stores. That's such a good example. And so I want to move us into another very specific, but top of mind example that's happening right now. I keep calling it, you know, shouting out my family in Cincinnati. So I got a bunch of family in Cincinnati. Every time I'm there, I see all the Kroger's everywhere. Like Kroger's is the Cincinnati grocery store, unless it's a dollar store or something. So a few months ago, Kroger's decides they don't have enough stores or enough money. They need to buy Albertsons and have more stores and make more money. Okay. Can you walk us through uh, their claim is, oh yeah, more stores, more efficiency. We're going to be able to lower prices. It's going to be great for everybody. Can you walk us through why I'm going to use PG language and say like, that's not accurate. Yeah. Tell us what the, what the real story is behind that merger and, and why it's dangerous for communities. It is dangerous. And, you know, a lot of people are opposing it. And I'm hoping that the federal antitrust agencies are going to block it. So we'll see. But the reason that, you know, it's it's really dangerous is that this is going to, you know, part of the reason that Kroger and Albertsons want to combine is, is in order to have more power over suppliers. These big companies, one of the big problems in our grocery system is that these big companies, they go to the, the big suppliers and they are major buyers. And so they have a lot of leverage and they say, look, you, you're going to give us a sweetheart deal. You're going to give us a, a big discount. You're going to give us special product sizes, mm. different terms, superior access when there's shortages. And in turn, you're going to, in effect, raise prices on our competitors. 
there ends up being this waterbed effect where the more that Walmart and Kroger and Albertson squeeze the suppliers, the more they end up raising prices on the independent and smaller grocers who don't right. have that kind of power. Right. And so, and that just creates an unlevel playing field. And this has nothing to do with volume efficiencies because the independent grocers, they're, they're buying through these giant cooperatively owned wholesalers mm. that are buying product by the mini truckloads. I mean, they're achieving the same scale efficiencies as Kroger or Walmart. This is purely about, I have financial muscle and I'm going to get my way. And this is, this is one of the things that's really devastated local grocers with all the kinds of fallouts for, for communities like that we've been talking about. So one of the major reasons that Kroger wants to do this merger is to have more buyer power. Um, that's pure and simple. Like that doesn't serve anybody at all. It in fact will cause more harm in terms of grocery stores, local grocery stores closing as they lose out. One of the other big dangers, or there's two other big dangers. One is that these companies, because they have such, they have a huge overlap. So there are a lot of places where you might, you know, neighborhoods where you might have at least two options for grocery stores, Kroger or Albertsons, where you're going to end up with just one, like there's going to be reduced competition and that's going to enable these chains to raise prices. And we've already seen the chains taking advantage of this moment to lift up prices. We've seen soaring grocery prices, some of which is due to supply chain stuff, but some of it is due to just pure like concentration and market power. And then if this deal does go through, the chains are probably going to have to divest some of their stores because of that overlap. And so we're going to have several hundred stores that are going to be spun off into a new company. And we know from past examples of this, that those new companies often fail. And so you end up in the same place. You just have one choice of grocery store in those communities. And then I start to wonder, well, of the stores they're going to spin off, they're going to pick what the ones that are unionized, you know, the ones that are in lower income neighborhoods, like what, you know, which are the right, stores right. that they're going to jettison? Like they're going to use that strategically to increase their power over workers or to leave behind neighborhoods that they don't want to serve or, or whatever it may be. So every way you look at this thing, it's just a bad idea and we need to stop it. You've done such a fantastic job of explaining this issue. And I know when, you know, we've had private conversations, I've reprimanded might be too strong, but I sort of warned you about getting into the nerdy, like RPA conversation, Robinson <laughs> conversations, and things of that nature. But I, I do think it's important. You know, we do a lot of work that advocate for the for the small businesses and local communities to to really highlight these policy positions that are important that, you know, regulators and policymakers should be thinking about. Are there, you know, you want to, this is your moment, you know, you want to shout out any of the, <laughs> of the reports that we've been working on or yeah, like this, this is the moment to, to really get, get, get weedy, at least, you know, to highlight some of the, some of the work we're doing. So you're giving me permission to say Robinson Patman Act. I, I am. I am. <laughs> and you think we're late enough in the show that listeners aren't just going to tune right on out? Well, they're they're invested at this point. Like they've oh, right. so much time. It's like okay, might as well keep listening. So yeah, okay. yeah. You know, so I I think the way to think about this is the stories at the local level, like the story that Aaron shared, and, and you know, with Oasis Market and in Tulsa, and 14 years of being a food desert, and just having all these dollar stores overrun the neighborhood, and then finally, the city fighting back, and you know, passing an ordinance, the community fighting back, and getting this brand new full service locally owned grocery store that's really so beneficial to the community. That kind of story could be happening in so many more places 
if we address some of these federal problems. That is the thing. Like we, there are a lot of people out on the ground who are struggling and working on these kinds of issues in their communities. And right now they're facing this real uphill battle because of the way federal policy tilts the playing field against grocery stores like Oasis. And the reason to get involved in this fight is like we could tilt the playing field in the other direction and actually make this whole thing more a much easier prospect and get more and more of these kinds of businesses being able to open and succeed and serve their communities well. And so with that as a a kind of introduction, the Robinson-Patman Act is an antitrust law that was passed in the 1930s specifically to deal with buyer power. This notion that I was talking about in terms of Walmart and these big chains gaming the system, using their power over suppliers to get better deals, forcing independent grocers to pay higher prices and pass those higher prices on often to communities that can least afford it, right? This incredibly unfair system that is is a total function of power. We have a law that explicitly forbids that. And it was passed specifically with the grocery store industry in mind. And a lo- right around 1980, the powers that be decided that they were just going to stop enforcing this. Congress never repealed it. But the antitrust enforcers it kind of fell into disfavor. They thought, oh, it's good if these big companies use their power and they lower prices in the long run. Now, now we know that that's not true. We have ample evidence that that's not happened, that consolidation, in fact, has hurt consumers, it's hurt workers, it's hurt farmers, it's hurt communities. So we need to go back to enforcing this law. And the folks at the Federal Trade Commission now are giving it a good look. There's some real interest in bringing it back. And in fact, Commissioner Alvaro Bedoya gave an important speech last fall at an event that that ILSR co-hosted in which he explicitly called for reviving the Robinson-Patman Act. So the more that the Federal Trade Commission hears from people on the ground who are struggling with these issues, the more likely they are to pick up that law and actually use it. And it will make all of our work at the local level that much easier. I want to end this conversation with with asking about what your vision is for thriving communities. You've been at this work for a long time. We often talk about the harms and the consequences and the impacts that we see in our economy of these sort of laws that are not being enforced. And so I want to sort of look at the other side of the coin. What does a thriving community look like to you? Yeah, I mean, well, starting with, a, I guess, with with the sort of grocery sector, since that's what we've been talking about, I, I can imagine a future where where independent grocers are half of the grocery market, maybe more, you know, you have every place has a locally owned grocery store or, or maybe multiple locally owned grocery stores, each of them with a kind of different flavor, different orientation. I mean, one of the beauties of diversity like that is that you get businesses that are uniquely adapted to serve a particular community and it's eating interests and needs or particular entrepreneurs that have like a certain interest in a particular kind of product that they want to showcase. I mean, there's so much benefit that goes with that. And I think I can imagine a future if we get these policies right where, yeah, we still have chains, you know, the chains are doing their thing, but they're not overrunning communities. They're not engaging in these predatory practices. And, you know, they're there if that's an option that you want, but then there's a lot of room in the market for local businesses, co-op, other kinds of, of business models to take root and really grow. One of the great benefits of that in the grocery sector is not only what that would mean at the neighborhood level, and we would definitely see like going back to the ecology 
all of this like new species diversity filling in a lot of those gaps in the market. But one of the great things that that would do, it would open up opportunities for all kinds of food producing businesses, mm. which is one of the great untapped economic opportunities is to is to help people who have great ideas for, you know, producing different kinds of of foods, sauces, cakes, yeah. you know, all the things yeah. that you might imagine. That's like low hanging fruit because a lot of people are great cooks. A lot of people want to go into business, but right now you, you know, you try selling your special spaghetti sauce to Walmart. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't work at that yeah. scale. They deal with P and G and ConAgra. They don't deal with these local entrepreneurs. So we have small grocers and now we got a whole avenue of new economic development and business ownership that we can create. Well, thank you so much, Stacey, for this thoughtful conversation and for joining us on the show today. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to everything discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That is ilsr.org. If you like this podcast, please share it with your family, your friends, the strangers that follow you on social media because you're a great follow, everyone. And remember, all of your reviews, likes, and donations help produce this podcast and support the research and resources that we make available on our website. This show is produced by Luke Gannon and me, Reggie Rucker. This podcast is edited by Drew Birschbach and Luke Gannon. Our brand new theme music is composed by ILSR's communications manager, Andrew Frank. Thank you for listening to Building Local Power. And coming up on the next episode of Building Local Power. A country with no farmers is no country at all. And this past year is the first time the United States has imported more food than it has exported. And so once you have somebody controlling what you eat, you're in pretty bad shape. <laughs>